esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Uh, it's my favorite book. It's going to be your favorite book. It's available as a paperback, an audiobook. The ebook is free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Once you're hooked, come back and see me with some money for Banneker Bones and the Alligator People and the upcoming, as of yet to be revealed, uh, Banneker Bones' third adventure, Banneker Bones and the Something. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kant, I write horror novels, such as the young adult novel All Together Now, a zombie story, uh, and All Right Now, a short zombie story. Uh, and then if you really want to go nuts, check out the Book of David. And when you look at the Book of David, when you give that a read, you will wonder the same thing that I find myself wondering which is why would you market a book like that from a blog and a podcast about middle-grade books? That's just a fair question. This book is nuts. Uh, filled with profanity, filled with violence, filled with every every imaginable thing. It's a hard R uh, at best. But if you're a Stephen King fan, if you like your horror novels, check out the Book of David. It's a five-volume serial horror novel. The first uh, installment, the Book of David, Chapter 1, is available to download as an ebook for free whenever you're watching or listening to this, where we're buying ebooks or sold. Uh, coming up on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast, we've got just a plethora of amazing guests I can't wait uh, for us to talk to. Uh, we're going to be talking next week with authors Kate Hannigan and Alan Woodrow. Uh, after that, we'll talk with uh, our old friend Laura Martin. We're going to talk with Dan Gutman, uh, Sharon M. Draper, and many, many more. Uh, if you're an author or a publishing professional, you tune into the show and you'd like to be on it, don't wait for me to, to ask you. I'm very lazy. I'll, I'll get to it as soon as I can. But if you want to be like that, let's make this beautiful. Uh, get in touch with me through middlegradeninja.com, and let's set up a time when I can chat with you. Uh, today, I couldn't be more excited. We're going to be talking with former literary agent and editor Molly Cusick. Uh, Molly, how are you today? Hi, Rob. Uh, thanks so much for chatting with me. I'm well, thanks. How are you? I am very excited to talk with you and feeling good. It's uh, 10 o'clock here in the morning. I'm on my uh, third cup of coffee. So I'm not <laughs> yet the totally vibrating stage that comes along a little bit later when I uh, sit down to pen today's pages. Uh, it's a good, mellow time in the morning to chat. Um, so probably a good place for us to start is I am terrible at summarizing other people's biographies. So if you would, just tell a themed audience a little bit of your background in publishing and your career so far. Sure. Uh, I've been in publishing for 10 years as an agent and an international rights professional. I recently moved over to Sourcebooks as an editor, something somewhat new for me, but as I was a very editorial agent, it was a pretty natural transition. So I now edit picture books, middle grade, and YA here at Sourcebooks. Very cool. That is a, a big transition. You were also doing, oh, what was the, the word for it? Because John uh, had told me about it. It was a term I never heard about. Uh, before oh, scouting. It's, it's part of the yeah. international rights world. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's start there. What's the difference between being a literary agent, a book scout, and now an editor? Um, well, agenting and, and editorial have pretty solid similarities. Um, scouting is part of international rights. Basically, you're employed by foreign publishers all over the world to help them scout the best manuscripts that are on submission in New York. Um, so it's a lot of you know, establishing relationships with agents and editors, trying to get them to leak you the hot manuscript of the moment, reading them, evaluating them, and letting your clients um, around the world know whether you think uh, they should buy these manuscripts and for how much. So it's sort of, you know, predicting the next hot ticket and um, a lot of gossiping and back channeling. 
oh, perfect. Can you tell us what's, what's the next big item going to be? <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid I can't tell you that. Oh, Molly, I was hoping you could give me the hot trends for the next 10 years in publishing. <laughs> that would be nice. If I could, I'd be a wealthy woman. That would be well. And um, I had, I was charmed by your bio. I read that uh, you're obviously a big reader uh, and a fan of reading. In fact, let's just, uh, but you also, you ran a Harry Potter website uh, for a time. And I want to make sure I ask you about that. Uh, everybody loves Harry Potter. What was, uh, what was your take on Harry Potter? What was your website about? Um, it was an RPG. It was HogwartsSchoolOfMagic.com, and I ran it when I was in middle school with a girl I met online who lived in London, um, who's now a published author. Emily Tesh has an adult um, fantasy book just out now with Tor. <laughs> so we both sort of ended up publishing adjacent, which is pretty cool. That was a that was a power site. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it worked out. <laughs> and what uh, what are typically your reading habits uh, even before you got into the industry? Oh, gosh. Um, I've always been a really avid reader, and I read broadly across all categories. Um, I got into publishing when I was 19, so I was pretty young. I started as an intern and quickly transitioned to full-time while I was in college. So I didn't have that much opportunity to develop a reading taste beyond kids' books. Um, but I loved them so much that I really felt that I could never leave them. Uh, and that's why I work in it full-time now. But um, working in international rights for 10 years, I read everything you know, from romance to suspense to literary nonfiction on the adult side. So I read really broadly and I feel like that sort of keeps me on my toes and, and keeps me fresh. Uh, chatting uh, last week or no earlier this week uh, with literary agent Jennifer Madsen and she was saying she reads 20 to 30 books uh, a month and she asked me how much I read and I started thinking about it. I'm like, well, if you count picture books and you count graphic novels uh, and you count partials uh, for people that I'm uh, revising, then yeah, usually 20, 30. You know about where you're clocking in on that uh, monthly, weekly, whichever, whichever choice. Does that include submissions, or is that just like fun reading? Oh gosh, well submissions, it would be yeah, it would be pretty high. Um, but I try to read one book a week for fun, um, so four of those, I guess. Um, you know, if it's something really short or pacey, and I'm like at the beach over the weekend, then I'll read more than that. Um, but definitely want to get my like for fun reading in to cleanse the palate so you don't get submission goggles, as I call them, where um, the things that are really not so great just start to look better than the other things that are really, really not great. Um, so it's important to sort of reacquaint yourself with what's actually being published so you don't get those goggles. That makes sense. I have been reading a lot of middle grade books uh, for upcoming guests on the, on the show mm -hmm. uh, and some horror books for some horror authors I'm going to see in person. And they're going to say, hey, did you read my book? And I want to be able to say, honestly, yes, I did. And I enjoyed <laughs> the following things about it. Uh, but I uh, fell down something I would ordinarily never read, which is that Big Little Lies. And I lost about five hours of, of my life last night. I couldn't stop. It's like, oh, my God, what a, what a wonderful fun, right? out of my genre. But what's your most recent for fun read? My most recent for fun read, um, I just finished, actually, I just, I took a picture of like my most recent read that I'm trying to, you're interviewing me on my phone, so I can't look at it, but um, I most recently finished, let's see, Three Women by Lisa Taddeo, which is um, sort of literary nonfiction about the lives and desires of three women that the author researched over 10 years. Um, I really loved uh, a suspense novel that I finished last weekend called uh, The Silent Patient, I can't remember who the author is, um, but it was excellent. Um, and a book that I'm recommending to everyone this summer is uh, Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston, which is a really great, um, like, adult sort of rom-com. Cool. 
Got this red, white, and blue that uh, has a Molly Cusick seal of approval. Everyone should be reading it on the beach. Yes, you should definitely read it on the beach. Um, it's a, if, the, if the president of the United States' son and the Queen of England's son uh, were enemies, but then ended up falling in love, of course. Uh, so, yes, you should absolutely <laughs> read it. That's the only way that can really end. And I want to follow up with you. Uh, you were kind enough to uh, face the seven questions that are still available now at Middle Grade Ninja back when you were a literary agent, Molly Jaffa. <laughs> Uh, back in 2013. Oh, my God. That's crazy. And at that time, I, I asked you, I asked everybody the impossible question of what are three of your most favorite books? Uh, and it's impossible because that's a forever moving goal. At the time, I think, well, I know you said that they were Harry Potter, The Girl's Guide to Hunting, and Fishing by Melissa Banks. Uh, and then you also had uh, Parsifal, Redwall, The View from Saturday, Are You There, Guys, Me and Margaret. I should also add, I encourage people to cheat because it is an impossible question. Um, so are there updates for that uh, revision she'd like to make at this point with new favorite books? Oh, that's so hard. Um, I would add Red, White, and Royal Blue, which I just mentioned. Um, I have to mention my amazing husband's forthcoming middle grade novel, uh, that I worked on editorially, <laughs> so you should mark your calendars for Dimension Y, How to Save the Universe Without Really Trying. Um, Will uh, Dimension Y come out? Uh, next fall, and it just, like, makes me laugh so hard. Like, if I was, I don't know, drinking milk, it would come out my nose. Like, it's one of the best things that I've ever read. Um, otherwise, I think I my know list... he's going to be watching. I should quickly remind the author. <laughs> Hi, John. It's lovely Hi, to John. see you. Hi, John. Uh, uh, yeah, my husband's going to come back uh, next fall to chat about your book. <laughs> he totally should do that. Um, yeah. Uh, otherwise, I think it's, it's pretty similar to now. But um, John now represents a lot of the clients that I represented as an agent. So it's sort of all in the family. If you stole our hearts with a uh, charming story about how the two of you met over, I believe it was Julia Murphy. Yeah, yeah, we did. <laughs> and he represents her now. So it sort of worked out for him. I don't know if he was playing the long game or what, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, he got the client. He got uh, he got the girl. He's doing all right. <laughs> I guess so. Uh, and then uh, something else I read that you had said that you had uh, taken a class on Parsifal in college, and that had changed the course of your life. And I love stories about how books change people's lives. Uh, so, what, what's the story there? How did that change your life? Gosh, that's true. Um, I was at a college in Texas. I was really unhappy there, and took a class uh, with a professor on this book, Parts of All, which is sort of a classic hero's journey story. Um, and I you know, spoke frequently with the professor who told me, you, know, you really don't belong here. Um, you should go to Sarah Lawrence in New York. Um, that's the kind of school for you. And I applied to transfer and I did. And if I hadn't done that, I, I don't think I ever would have ended up you know, in publishing where and when I did. Uh, definitely never would have met my husband. Uh, so really, I think everything in my life is probably thanks to that class and that professor. Well, there you go, professors who are listening. Uh, your students <laughs> listen. You could change their life today. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you told me back in 2013 that you did not own a television. Is that still true? <laughs> no, that's not true. Um, I probably got a TV maybe three years ago. Um and I don't get to read as much as I did before, but I started to kind of view a lot of pop culture and, and TV watching as part of my job now, um, especially in the YA space where so much is influenced by like what's on Netflix and what's streaming. Um, so I do watch it and I just try to tell myself that it's for work. <laughs> well, yeah, no, it, it is. You can't uh, write about uh, methamphetamine and be completely unaware that there's a show called Breaking Bad. That's, not That's true. <laughs> 
Uh, and then, um, do you play uh, video games also? Um, I don't really, no. Good for you. It's a shameful, nasty addiction. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, <laughs> to <laughs> overcome my need for Assassin's Creed. Uh, so what, what is your average, um, how much TV are you watching on an average week versus how much reading that you're doing? Oh, gosh. Um, I try to reserve, like, the hour before bed every night for reading. Um, and then before that, I'll probably watch an episode or two of something. Excellent. Yeah, and uh, this is really just me trying to improve myself uh, because I realized that I had binge-watched two series uh, within the last month. But I'm like, that's a lot of television. I really <laughs> need, to, <laughs> I need to change my habits and get more reading in. <laughs> so um, you're an intern at 19, and, and, and I know – some of the folks that, that tune into the show want to be where you are. They want to be an editor. They want to be a successful literary agent and book scout. Uh, they want to have the, the career that you've had. So how did you get involved at the age of 19 direct into publishing? What was your in? Um, so I just I applied for an internship when I was in college in New York and luckily got one at Folio, which is an agency in New York. Um, and while I was there, my mom lost her job and it was just the two of us. And I told my boss, like, I'm going to need to get another paying job. I can't, I can't work here for free anymore. You know, I was devastated. I loved it so much. And he just said, Oh, well, we'll, we'll hire you. Um, so I started off while I was in college as an assistant in the subrights department and still working with my boss, um, editorially on his clients projects. And, but I, I guess it was maybe the end of my junior year, uh, my boss said, well, you're a kid. Do you want to work on kids' books? <laughs> and I was like, sure. Um, so, you know, with, with supervision and, and with help from colleagues, I started representing clients and sold my first book the summer before my senior year of college and really never looked back. Um, so I got started very early, but I was, you know, really fortunate to have the opportunities that I had. Wow, that is amazing. What was the first book that you sold? <laughs> um, the first book, the first kids book that I sold was um, a picture book to Candlewick, to Karen Lots of Candlewick, the author's Lana Crumwitty, and it was called Just Itsy, about a spider uh, named Itsy who doesn't want to be called Itsy Bitsy anymore. He just wants to be called Itsy because he is a big spider going off to spend your garden. Um, and it was, it was really cute. <laughs> That's horrible. Did it strike you at the time that I haven't even finished college yet? This is a really big thing that has happened that I've done? Or was it yeah. not page you? Um, no, it was weird. It was very much like a double life. I'm like dating myself by saying it was like a very Hannah Montana kind of thing to do. It's like now everyone knows that I'm 30. Um, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't tell editors that I was still in school. So I would take the train in from school to go to lunch with editors and just like try to pretend to be more grown up than I was. Um, it worked out, I guess. Well, that sounds like uh, that's, that's lots of advice we could flush out a little bit for uh, young, uh, eager people that want to get to where you were. What, uh, what things did you do to, to be older and to ingratiate yourself with, um, with the right people? I mean, there's a lot of fake it till you make it, for sure. Um, my boss told me to get a watch, that it would make me look older. Um, so I did get a watch. Um, I, I got my first iPhone for, for this job, that job. Um, but, I mean, I say, you know, fake it till you make it. To a point, I feel like there are a lot of um, newer agents right now, not necessarily young ones, but a lot of new agencies popping up with that are run by people who don't really have the experience necessary to be an agent. Um, now on the editorial side of the desk, I'm seeing a lot of submissions from agents who clearly don't know what they're doing, and it makes me so sad for writers. Um, so, you know, if you are thinking about being an agent, like, please don't take 
the shortcut of just saying, well, I'll just go into business for myself because there are no requirements to be an agent. Um, trust me when I say like, you don't know what you don't know. And you really do need like a mentor, someone who's in New York, someone who's been in the business a long time, someone who knows contracts. Um, you know, I'm just, I'm seeing a lot of these agents who accept the first offer that comes in from a publisher, um, who spam agents with submissions, who just do everything wrong. Um, and these are agents who, you know, have Twitter profiles and people think are very cool. Um, so it's just so important. If you want to get into the industry to do it right um, and not take shortcuts. And if you're a writer to really do your research and, um, you know, to talk to some of the agent's clients and to look on publisher's marketplace to see if they've sold anything. Um, I'm shocked by the number of people I hear from calling themselves literary agents and their agency does not have a single verified sale anywhere. Um, sorry, that's my soapbox. I feel so strongly about this. Uh, oh, that's what we, what we want to hear about. The only, the only thing I might push back on that just a little bit uh, is at one point I could have reached out to what uh, 19, 20 year old, how old you were uh, when you sold your first picture book and you wouldn't have had any verifiable sales. Uh, no, but my agency would. Um, oh, okay. And so the you, point you is, you know, you're going to take a chance on a new agent so long as the agency is credible. And they as long as the agency is credible and as long as that agent has a mentor. Every time I spoke to an author, you know, my, my boss was on the phone with me, um, was working with me, you know, looking at, at my projects, at my submission letters, helping me with submission lists. Like, you know, never was I doing anything on my own, certainly never negotiated anything or, or handled a contract on my own, um, you know, for years. And that's really the way that it should be. Gotcha. So the, the experience that you should be looking for an agent is oh, ideally they have a mentor. Are there other things that, that um, an agent, somebody who wants to be an agent could do to become a good agent and to be seen as a good agent? Aside from just put your shingle out and say it's me, an agent. Um, it's really an apprenticeship business. And all I can say is that, you know, a passion for books is not enough. Um, I've spoken to authors who have been unhappy with their agents before at conferences and they say like, well, she just really won me over because she loved my book so much. And like, that's lovely, but we all love books. Like an agent is your more or less your business manager. Um, if they don't know anything about contracts, if they don't know anything about foreign rights, like I'm astounded at the number of agents who couldn't tell me like what the standard escalation is for, I don't know, a picture book, hardcover royalty. Like if you don't know that off the top of your head, girl, <laughs> you're in trouble. Um, so yeah, it's just that there's, there's a lot that you need to know and it's not just about like, oh, I'm a good editor or oh, I like books. Um, yeah, I just feel really strongly that when you're taking an author's career and, and finances into your hand as an agent, um, that you need to know what you're doing and be at a reputable agency. Makes sense to me. And what, um, well, let's talk a little bit about your time as an agent. What, what were some things that you did as an agent to distinguish yourself and make sure that you were uh, above the uh, above the rest and somebody that uh, would be desirable to have representing your career in your novel? Um, you try to be as accessible as possible, I think, um, which can be really draining, I think, emotionally, um, because you're really available to your clients sort of 24-7. There aren't uh, boundaries <laughs> so much. Um, and, you know, maybe I could have set more boundaries. Um, but for me, I think especially uh, we offers that I worked with, you know, if they have a day job, like you want to be available for them to like text at night or to email and for them to know that you're there for them. Um, so I think being available to your clients definitely helps. Um, you know, other than that, I just always wanted to interact with my clients in the way that was most helpful for them, whether it's phone or email or Gchat, um, really just, you know, being flexible and, and knowing that 
you're working for your client, not the other way around. Makes sense to me. Uh, and then uh, now that um, now that you're on the other side of the desk, you're the editor receiving the submissions. I think we're hearing a little bit. I know that I waited tables in, in college, uh, and, and I know lots of former waiters. Um, who, when we go out, if we see the restaurant's really busy, we'll do pity tips because we've been there. Uh, but other times, <laughs> if the restaurant's not that busy and we're looking around and remembering back in the day, like, you could have done a better job than this. We're a little <laughs> bit harsher uh, on their overall service. Do you find that there's something similar uh, when you're looking at, at other agents, not necessarily who are bad agents, but they could be doing better than what they're doing and submitting to you? Um. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there there has been a certain level of astonishment, um, but there's also you know a deep amount of respect for my colleagues who I've known and and been friendly with for years, former competitors um, who I'm delighted to hear from. You know, I'm very excited to read everything that they send me. Like, there are really great agents out there. Um, I won't say that it's the majority of agents, <laughs> but um, but there are are great ones that I'm you know thrilled to work with and, and always so happy to see their names in my inbox. For the agents who, who I know tune in, um, what are some things they can do to, to turn your head and, and maybe get your attention more than uh, than, than the average agent who doesn't know? Um, you know, it's always appreciated when they're sending me something that I've, I've talked about seeing from you know, my wish list, um, you know, in my, in my bio on the Sourcebooks website or that I've sent them directly or something we've discussed, um, you know, either in a lunch meeting or on the phone. Um, but really, I'm, I'm just looking for something that's great, that has commercial potential that I can't stop reading, and that could be anything. Um, so I'm, I'm not super picky in that sense. Um, but it's always helpful when it's someone who's made the effort to, to make a personal connection. I think when you know, when you know someone, you're more likely to want to wanna read what they send you. So what are the best ways for um, people to make personal connections with you without coming off a little bit, uh, you know, salesman issues. Um, so right now I'm kind of going through my, my long list of agents and inviting everybody out to lunch and coffee and drinks. And that's like three or four meetings a week. So I'm slowly kind of working through that list. Uh, but if there's somebody I don't know or I'm not that familiar with, um, you know, people have reached out to me and said, can we go get coffee? And I'll say, yeah, sure. Um, if there are agents who aren't in New York, um, I'm happy to, to chat with them by phone just to do like a little getting to know you. Um, because I want to know, you know, what they're representing and interested in, too. It's helpful for me. I'm going to amend my uh, previous statement. Not salesman-ish, salesperson-ish. My gosh. Come on, Ken. It's 2019. Let's, <laughs> let's get it together. <laughs> All right. Uh, fun question. And then I'm going to ask you some specific stuff about being an editor and the types of projects you're looking for. But uh, I promised myself I wouldn't forget because I forgot to ask John. Uh, over the course of two hours, uh, this question, and then I saw him tweeting about alien abduction. I went, oh, no, I bet he for sure had something to tell me. So, uh, Molly Cusick, have you ever seen a flying saucer, and do you believe in them? I have not, and no. Okay, well, <laughs> fair enough. Um, and then let's talk about uh, about what, your, what sorts of projects are you looking for right now as an editor? Good ones. Um, I know that that sounds really flippant and it's not. Um, I approach this in part from so many years as an agent looking for things that are commercial enough to reach a wide audience and that will make everyone involved, especially the author, money. Um, so I am looking for things that do have that great commercial hook in addition to really good writing. 
Um, in picture books right now, I'm looking specifically for really quirky characters that kids will fall in love with and root for. Um, you know, it's sort of like the younger hipster parents like, like, you know, Dragons Love Tacos or Escargot about the little snail and it's so cute and it wears a beret. Um, so yeah, like characters that I sort of want to hug, I'm down for that. Um, nothing too like sappy or sweet. I'm not super into like lullaby for my darling child like no you know make me laugh show me something different um i you know love picture books um showcasing a more a wider variety of life experiences um in picture books and in all my books i want projects that elevate marginalized voices um so that's definitely something for people to keep in mind i'm, I'm super open to own voices projects in particular um, and in middle grade, definitely looking for, you know, sweeping fantasy. Um, I loved Nevermore, for example. Um, and I also love the more like tearjerker or kind of prize winning thing about jellyfish kind of books. Um, you know, it makes you as an adult laugh. I mean, cry because you're, you're thinking like about your childhood and it makes you nostalgic and kid is like, why are you crying? Like, this is just a good book. Um, so things in that vein, um, really appeal to me. Um, and then in YA, I'm, I'm a little burned out on fantasy right now. Uh, I love fantasy, um, but it's becoming increasingly harder to sell in a really crowded marketplace. It's not to say you don't go out with your fantasy. Just know that if you're getting passes, it, it may not be you. It might just be the market right now, and it'll come back around in no time. Um, definitely looking for thrillers. Sourcebooks is, um, according to Nielsen Bookscan, the top publisher of YA thrillers. Um, and I read a lot of suspense and thrillers in my spare time, so please send them to me. And uh, <laughs> things that are more on the literary side of YA, like Elizabeth Acevedo's work, Love the Poet X, Love with the Fire on High, um, that sort of deal with social issues without being an issue book. It's just something that happens to take place over the course of a person's story. Um, what else? open to some sci-fi, um, but most importantly, like looking for, I would love a queer rom-com, <laughs> please. And I would love um, really any rom-com that's not about two white straight people would be super cool. Um, you know, things that are sort of funny and uplifting, I think are having a moment. Um, but I'm, I'm open to anything that feels fresh and unique. You mentioned uh, a rom-com that's not just two straight white people, so that leads me to my next uh, fander question. I've, I've taken at the ever once, because uh, I'm uh, eager to, to see this trend that we're, we're hopefully going to see continuing toward more diversity and more inclusion in, in traditional publishing. We're still nowhere near where we need to be. You can pull up the chart on multiple websites, but it'll show you where we're at, particularly in children's books. Uh, but that it, it is significantly better than, than years past, and hopefully we'll continue to do so. Uh, so what is Sourcebooks doing to continue to increase diversity in traditional publishing? And what are you seeing? Uh, what are you doing? And, and what are you seeing others doing? Sourcebooks has really been working to grow our list of authors who come from marginalized backgrounds. Um, and that's something that I think that we're known for and are really proud of and are continually looking to expand. Um, some of the things that matter to other publishers, you know, I've heard some publishers say like, oh, we only want YA authors who have, you know, a Twitter platform of, of X size don't matter to us. We're an independent publisher. We're really nimble and we don't judge people from that perspective. Um, we've been working with, um, there's a, an amazing woman named Krista Desir who is a copy editor, a freelance editor who often works with source books. And she's um, started a program called Tessera Editorial, which you can find on Twitter and, and on their website. Um, she's mentoring young people of color who want to get into the publishing industry. Um, so I've been speaking to them, like I did a, a session with them and also um, 
informational interviews. Um, people in our copy editing department have done that as well. So we're really looking for ways to um, kind of make ourselves available to young people of color or people of color who are looking to get into publishing. Um, my offer always stands that if anyone um, wants to know more about being an editor or even an agent or a scout. I'm always happy to hear from them by email and to set up a phone call or even an in-person meeting if they're in New York, just any kind of informational interview that's helpful um, and, and to keep resumes on hand. Um, you know, I think everybody needs a, a hand up to get into publishing and I'm happy to be that hand up for people who are interested. Well, that's true. Paying it forward. You'll, you'll do that free of charge. I don't have to come oh, by. Totally. No. Well, excellent. You heard it here, folks. Reach out to Molly Cusick. <laughs> I'm not that generous. I won't do it, but Molly will. Come on. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk a little bit uh, about your current role with Forest Books. Sure. Um, so you see, you, you find a manuscript that you're interested in. If you're working with a writer that you haven't worked with previously, where do you get started? What, yeah, what's the process from I'm interested to finish books? Sure. So I read a manuscript um, that comes in over the transom from an agent. Hopefully I really like it. Um, I'll probably read it again if I liked it, just to make sure that I wasn't, I don't know, crazy <laughs> and that, um, that it really is as good as I thought it was the first time when I was like desperately reading to get to the end. Uh, that then, uh, um, yeah, I mean, sometimes you'll, you'll think something's better than, than it really is and you need kind of a, a second look. Um, especially if it's something really twisty and complicated or there's a lot of world building, you may not have noticed some of the plot holes the first time around. Um, but if it's something that I think is, is really you know, full of potential, I will send it to my colleagues here in the editorial department. Um, there are five of us, including the, the head of the kids division, Steve Gack, and our editorial assistant, Sarah. Um, and then if everybody thinks that it seems pretty good, you know, they'll read some of it. Um, then I'll take it on to an acquisitions meeting where our publisher and everyone in the editorial department, adults and kids, will have a chance to look at the book, um, you know, share their opinions on it, and then the publisher will decide whether or not I'm able to make an offer on the book. Um, hopefully the agent accepts my offer. Maybe there will be an auction or, or whatever. Um, but once I'm officially working on a project, I will read it again um, and write an editorial letter. And that could be, you know, three pages for a very short you know, middle grade novel. It could be 15 pages if it's a really complicated YA fantasy. Um, it just sort of, it depends on what the individual book needs. Um, and then after that, I will send it to the author and usually offer to go over it with them by phone once they've had a chance to kind of sit and process their feelings. Sometimes it's a little easier to sort of spitball ideas back and forth um, than it is to write it down in an email. It feels a little less intimidating and official, I find. Um, sometimes we'll go, you know, maybe two or three or four rounds of edits on a book before it's ready to go on to copy editing. What well, uh, to follow up on there? Uh, and I'm trying to, to remember everything you just said. There's so many different things I want to want to follow up with you. On. Uh, we'll start with uh, just auctions because uh, we're we're forever talking with literary agents, and we know why they want to do an auction because uh, <laughs> they, they want to get the best deal for the book. What's that like on the editorial side when you're when you're waiting for the feedback? Do you, I mean, are you going another day before you get any kind of feedback as to where you're there? Do you have parameters that you can't bid more than this, so it's very possible that you might lose the book you love? What's that like? I mean, it's literally the worst. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you do you do have a ceiling uh, for the publisher. You know how high you can go. Um, and you know, since Sourcebooks is an independent publisher, we choose to spend most of our money on marketing and, and publicity, and we find that that's really effective in helping our, 
our authors earn out their advance quickly um, so that they're seeing royalties. Um, so our advances can't always go as high as some of the big five houses that can pay, you know, seven figures, um, which does have its advantages in that a lot of times authors who do get these big book deals, um, if their book doesn't sell as well as the publisher had anticipated, they find it very hard to get another book deal. And I think that our more modest advances set up a more reasonable expectation and really help establish people for a long career. So, you know, that's part of what I'm kind of pitching in an auction to the agent and to the author, letting them know what my reasoning is for why I'm offering and what we can offer just beyond the money. Um, so that's really important. But yeah, otherwise auctions are just absolutely miserable. Um, the other day I, I got this picture book in and I read it, you know, five minutes after the agent sent it. It was a great agent. I was excited to get something from him. Um, and I just totally fell in love. And I was like running around the office screaming, like, if I don't get this book, I'm going to die. Like, I will perish if I cannot publish this. Um, and luckily I was able to preempt the book, which means you, you know, you offer enough to, to take it off the table um, for other people have a chance to do so, which is the ideal situation for me so that I don't have to like sit there biting my nails and, and freaking out. And um, I'm always terrified I'm about to ask a rude question because I'm just too ignorant to know whether or not it's a rude thing to ask. That's okay. uh, is it rude to ask you what's the uh, average advance that would be, that should be, would be ideal for a um, up and coming uh, writer with source books uh, so that they're not stuck with uh, not being able to announce I feel like the company would not be pleased with me if I shared that publicly. Fair I don't enough. think I'm authorized to give that information um, because that would sort of reveal some of our authors' financial situations. Um, but we can be competitive with other publishers. I really appreciate you letting me touch the electric fence this time around so I don't make that same mistake if you That's okay. <laughs> um, okay. For, for the record, asking about money directly, not cool. Got it. <laughs> By all the way. Um, what's... Uh, Let's talk a little bit more about uh, working with the author, because you say it could be, you know, three or four rounds of, of going back and forth. Uh, so if you get to a point with, with an author where you're, you know, not maybe directly butting heads, but the author feels very passionately about their project one way, and you're trying to steer it another way, uh, Sourcebooks is putting up the money. They put up the unspecified advance. Um, so it, does it come to a point where it, it's your way or the highway, or how do those situations uh, typically get resolved? If there was something huge editorially that needed to change, that's something I definitely would have discussed with the author before acquiring the book. So there shouldn't be any like enormous surprises for them. Um, but, you know, if something comes up and we're kind of at an impasse, ultimately it's their decision. I can't make them change anything. Um, more importantly, you know, if I, if I see that there's a problem, um, I may have an idea for how to fix it. But as long as the author addresses the underlying problem. Say I say, you know, the, the pacing in this scene feels really slow. Um, I don't think it's that necessary. I think you should just cut the scene. If the author doesn't want to cut the scene, but they can find another way to make that scene feel integral to the story, then I'm fine with that. Let me ask you that then. What are some good ways to uh, increase pacing without just flat cutting scenes that you love? I really just feel like every, every sentence, honestly, should move the plot forward and or and or reveal something about a character every sentence every word really needs to earn its place um and that's one reason why i love children's fiction is that there's a certain kind of economy of language that is really beautiful in the way that it flows and i think sometimes especially in adult literary fiction people can be sort of verbose for the sake of being verbose uh don't get me wrong i enjoy literary fiction um but i think that children's authors really excel at that um, and the most successful ones have a good instinct for economy of language for sure.
And all flat-out state children's book authors, especially at middle grade, are the finest authors in the world. <laughs> I mean, I think That's so. That's a totally unbiased middle grade vision. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so it's, 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 when you're working with an author, it's really about finding a solution that's going to benefit everybody, right? Mm -hmm. Totally. Uh, and um, do you, so when you're when you're coming in, um, uh, something that when we were chatting with Molly O'Neill, she let us know that back in her editorial days, uh, she would be editing specifically for the house's um, needs for their their um, their type of book. I want to make this a HarperCollins type of book, so we're going to do these types of edits, um, which can be anything from down to you know a house style of how you do your ellipses. If you put a space between the word and the ellipses, you're a monster, but I know some people do that. Uh, two spaces <laughs> after a period, why would you do that? But I know people do that. Um, uh, beyond just uh, the, you know, the, the flat uh, deviations from the Chicago manual of style, um, are there uh, things in place, specific uh, two source books that you're editing for or a, a particular editing visioning for the company? Other than looking to publish, you know, diverse books that feel unique and stand out and really on the verge of whatever's coming next, uh, I really do have freedom to, you know, bring forward and, and hopefully acquire projects of my choosing within Picture Book Middle Grade 1A. Um, but I think, yeah, I think a source books book is something that feels, you know, fresh, that feels like we're taking a risk, that we're trying something new. Um, it's not the best place for, you know, like the millionth YA fantasy that's like, princess of rock and darkness or, or whatever. Um, you know, I want, we all want something, I think, that feels, um, that feels really stand out and really special and something that maybe is a risk that other publishers would be worried about taking. Gotcha. So if I've got just a straightforward girl in her horse book that's set on the uh, prairie, that maybe not, is not the one for you? I specifically dislike a girl in her horse books, but maybe one of my colleagues does like horses. I don't know. Um, so it's hard to say. But I would say, based on that description, it doesn't really sound like a source books book to me. I uh, went through a period of the blog where I, I read, a, I don't know, like 10 or 20 different girl in her horse books. Uh, and I uh, started to despair about what am I doing with my life? <laughs> to, to reach out and I've, 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 I'll never uh, write it but I, I have this pet project in the back of my mind where it's a girl and her horse but the twist is the horse is a serial killer <laughs> so, that's different they still love him but so they have to work together to, to curb his appetite for blood <laughs> so it's like my little pony meets little shop of horrors that, that is a that's that's a brilliant pitch. I bet you could sell the book to a room of editors for me when I get around to writing it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's go back to talk to that. You said that uh, your interest in acquiring a, a, a book, and you said, well, I've got this, this wonderful uh, serial killer horse book, uh, Little Shop of Horrors meets My Little Pony, um, and you've got to get, a, you said five people, is that including you? So there's four other people to get on board? Mm-hmm. So how, yeah. does, how does that go? How do you pitch to them and, and get everybody on the page if they agree that this serial killer horse book is the best one? Um, sharing with my colleagues is really informal. Usually I just, you know, email the manuscript over to them and say, like, I'm hoping to take this into acquisitions. Would love to know what you think. Um, and they'll take a look and say, like, yeah, this seems really cool. Or, ah, eh, this really reminds me of this other book that we recently bought. And it seems like they might compete too much. You know, it's like that aspect is pretty informal prior to acquisitions. Yeah, it should be. Um, and um, are there, 
Uh, there's things you well, it's, 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 it's informal, so there's no you get up and you're Don Draper in the room making the impassioned no. speech or presentation. That's that's how it happens in my mind. <laughs> Acquisitions is a little bit more like that, but I am seated. I don't have to stand. Got you. And um, or you know what? While we're talking about that, I assume there is a bit more of that uh, with uh, agents. Um, so well, we we talked a little bit about agents, but I was going to ask you. What are some effective uh, sales techniques for agents um, to sell a manuscript to you? But it sounds like just getting a uh, comparable, just like you just did with the Little Shop of Horrors meets, um, meets My Little Pony, so a brief pitch. Is there anything mm -hmm. more to it than that that, that would make a, a pitch stand out to you? Um, no, I mean, comps are, are pretty important. As editors, we do have to use uh, comparable titles in our acquisitions process, um, you know, to run a P&L statement, to, to show our colleagues that there's a market for it. So comps are always really helpful. Um, you know, if you can't think of comps, that's usually not a good sign. There's probably a reason why there isn't something similar to this or comparable to this in the marketplace. Um, and that's usually because there's not that much of a market for it. Um, you know, or the so, world just hasn't been ready for the brilliance of my serial killer horse book. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible, but see, I came up with comps for that. There you go. My that's little funny little shop of horrors. Like, <laughs> if you can't come up category. with it anything then like that's you know that's rough um no but i don't mind you know phone calls emails either way uh, if i'm gonna look at picking a comp to pitch my book am i better off going with a book that's genuinely closer to my book or just something that's uh tangentially related but has a great sales record um i mean you definitely want it to be a real comp like don't just you know pull in like Harry Potter or something like that, because it has amazing numbers. In fact, don't use Harry Potter. Um, that book has a child. My book has a child. What's the? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's the difference? Um, so ideally, you know, it would be something that's both successful and related to your book. Got you. Uh, and then let's uh, talk about uh, digging in and, and, and putting your editorial letter together. Um, so first pass you make over a manuscript, what, what are the types of changes you're looking to make? Um, the first pass is usually big picture edits, so I'm not going to be going through and doing like line level, like, oh, this dialogue sounds a little weird here. Um, it's much more about, you know, structure, um, you know, the order that the scenes are in, what each scene does to move the plot forward, um, you know, looking at all the characters, making sure they all need to be there and really serve a purpose in the story. Um, so, you know, plotting, pacing, motivation, these are like the bigger questions that we want to approach so that you know, the next round, we're not just looking at the forest, we can actually see like the trees. Um, the first round for me is more about the forest. So what are some common structural problems that you, you're encountering? Common structural problems. Um, I think, you know, especially if you're working on something that's very character driven, um, very emotion driven, uh, sometimes we can forget the need for forward motion for urgency and, and propulsion, um, we still, we always need to know, you know, what does the protagonist want more than anything else? Um, so what's at stake for them? And, you know, what's going to happen if they don't get that thing? Um, and if the thing that the protagonist wants is just like, oh, well, you know, Billy wants a lollipop. <laughs> what will happen if he doesn't get it? Oh, well, he'll be sad. Like, that's not, those aren't stakes. You know, we need really big stakes. If he doesn't get this lollipop, then he's not going to have a chance to look inside the wrapper for the prize 
ticket that will give his family the money they need to pay their rent. Like that's, that stakes, you know? Um, so I think, you know, not having stakes to set up what like the, the plot is going to be the whole plot arc, um, is something that I am always looking for. So you get through there, you, you deal with, you make sure, and you want, you want stakes and, in every scene, you want the character to always have a goal because when that goal is resolved and there's no stakes, that, that's the end of the story, right? Exactly. So you go through, you take care of that in round one. Okay, whew, that's taken care of. What's round two look like? Um, round two was reading to see how they addressed the issues that I brought up in the edit letter. Um, you know, usually if they didn't do it in track changes, hopefully they did, I'll do a document compare so I can actually see how much has been done. Um, if I don't think that it's been addressed enough, I'll just kind of send it right back. I'm not going to waste my time rereading for something that clearly isn't there. Um, but hopefully it has been addressed and then I'll have a little more time to look um, kind of at individual beats and moments, um, to go through dialogue, um, to do some line editing, which can involve, you know, deleting sections, rearranging sections, um, you know, proposing new language in sections or saying, you know, writing up a paragraph and saying, what about a moment like this? Um, so that kind of starts the, the more collaborative, I think, process of, of inline editing for me. I definitely want to pick your brain about uh, line editing because this is such a nerdy show. I, I, I could talk about language and, and editing all day. Uh, before we get there, um, if I'm an author and I'm getting the, the uh, letter back uh, and the, I'm assuming that you're not going to come right out and say, hey, dirtbag author, I told you to do work and you didn't do it. Um, you're going to be far more diplomatic than that. So, what uh, what are the things you might say that might give me a clue as the author that I need to I need to dig deeper and work harder? I think I'd probably just tell you that honestly. Like, I'm not really one for mincing words too much. You know, I'll be kind about it, but I don't want to waste your time, my time. If something you know needs to be addressed further, then I'll just say that. I think that's probably far preferable than somebody that blows a lot of smoke but is not clear in their communication. Yeah. Um, so let's go back to uh, line line editing. What uh, types of things are you looking for? Um, what kind of issues are you frequently seeing with uh, sentences, with long passages? What, what are the things that most frequently come up that authors can maybe start remedying on their own before they're, uh, they're, they're sending out their manuscript? Um, when I line edit, I'm, I'm looking for, you know, sort of a, a sentence flow that feels really natural. Um, so I read it at a, at a pace of kind of reading it aloud in my head to see how something sounds. Um, so I always recommend that authors read their own work out loud. That will really point out to you the places that sound awkward or stilted, just unrealistic. Um, so I do a lot of editing for that. Um, I do a ton of editing for word repetition, you know, where maybe the author will use the word fire in one sentence and then two sentences later they'll use the word fire again. Um, you know, just trying to like, to, to make sure that there's a, a variety of words in the manuscript and seeing, you know, what, what words authors over rely on without knowing. Um, that's something that I look for. Um, and I do some light copy editing too, to hopefully smooth the process <laughs> downstream for the, for the copy editors. And I assume by the time a, a manuscript gets to you, and it's, it's a big assumption probably, um, but I assume uh, that the author has gone through the manuscript multiple times and, and polish it to their best ability and then it goes to the agent and if the agent's a good agent they're working with you so i assume that must be um they've gone through and they've made sure that they're sending out a, a quality presentation your way so what stuff still slipping through at, at that point oh what's still slipping through um yeah i mean no book is ever 
it's ever perfect, right? Something can always be improved. And at some point in the publication process, you know, the editors are the ones who have to say like, okay, I think this is as good as we can make it. Um, you know, a lot of agents these days do work really hard editorially with their clients and, um, you know, they take it as far as they can, they think they can reasonably take it, but they also have to keep in mind that they are working for free until they sell a book, you know? Um, so an agent doesn't necessarily want to spend, five revisions with an author um, before they know that they're going to make some money on the book. Um, whereas once it gets to my desk, um, you know, I need to do whatever it will, whatever it'll take to get it there. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. I, I love asking these same questions to so many people because you get similar responses, but you get a new take on it. It's like, yeah, oh, of course, of course, they <laughs> don't want to work for free. <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, so another question uh, that I'm going to ask more delicately, because it's, it's another opportunity for me to maybe out of ignorance touch the fence. I hope that's not what this is. Um, but does it happen where an error will slip through to a final published product, obviously never with source books, but where you might have seen it as an agent or with a previous publisher? And what is that feeling afterward? How do you address that when it's, you know, it's already printed and it's out there in, in the world? Oh, yeah, I mean, it's a horrible feeling. Um, you know, when I read things that have errors in them, I'm always just like embarrassed for the people involved because I know that that would like it would hurt me and I'd be really upset. Um, but there's always, you know, an opportunity to correct things in future printings and certainly the opportunity to go in and, and revise the ebook so that the text is correct. Gotcha. So even if the uh, even if there's nothing to do about the initial print run, you can, you'll still fix the ebook and it'll be like it never happened for everybody after that point. Yeah, I mean, if the error is really severe, like there's a, you know, a page missing or something like that, then uh, you know the book would be pulped and they would do a new print run. Okay, if it's just like a missing period or yeah, then that'll just be... <laughs> yeah. Which I I think you should you should pulp and do a rerun if you put a space before another piece. Just... <laughs> I, I, I would like that too. Unfortunately, it would cost a lot of money. Rest assured, at the Kent household, that's a post that gets stuck across the room. <laughs> if it's good, I might pick it back up, but I will definitely tuck it for a moment. <laughs> uh, well, let me, uh, the, the, the time we have remaining, I want to pick your brain uh, just for some editing tips that can hopefully uh, help improve mine and everyone's listening fiction. Um, so let's talk a little bit about characters. What are some of the best ways to avoid stereotypical characters? Uh, and to create proactive characters rather than passive ones. What, what are some tips just for characterization? Um, I like to have people like answer BuzzFeed quizzes as their characters. <laughs> and I think that's a fun way to get to know like what your character would do is to kind of you know take online quizzes in their persona and you know find out do they like their marshmallows burnt or lightly toasted? Just all the little things that kind of make up a character. Plus it's fun. Um, and other than that, I think you know what makes proactive characters is, you know, high stakes and, and a great premise. Um, you know, if you're not starting from answering that question of, you know, what does my character want, um, you're going to have a pretty limp storyline. And then is there ever is there such a thing as a character that's too passionate about what they want? Um, I think only if that character is idealized to a point that they don't have flaws you know that's when we would call something like a mary sue character which is typically a stand-in for you know the author themselves and is just like too perfect and gets everything they want really easily like that's just not it's not interesting even superheroes have flaws you know um so that's you know they can be passionate and they can be you know do-gooders if you want but they do need to have um a flaw 
Oh, I sympathize with those writers. It's difficult for us walking around perfect, looking at the rest of flawed humanity. Oh, it's just it's to really be challenging you, uh, imperfect humans. Oh, that's good. <laughs> uh, so let's talk a little bit about plotting. Uh, how important is the book's opening, and how much time do you spend on that opening to make sure you're 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 getting readers in the door at the front versus the rest of the book? It's super important. I mean, for me, even as an editor, like I don't read the entirety of all or even most of my submissions. You know, I might give something 50 pages. Um, so openings are really important to me and how I consider things. And then once I've acquired something, you know, I'm going to want to be really sure that the that the opening is gripping down to the first sentence. And that's something, of course, I'm going to share with my colleagues and see how they feel about it. Um, but yeah, uh, openings are, are vital. And so do you prefer like a, a strong, what, what, what makes a good opening? Um, it could be voice. Uh, it could be stakes. Uh, hopefully it's both. <laughs> um, you know, I like to use the example of um, the first chapter of The Hunger Games, which, like, you know, you look back on and you think, oh, that must have been the reaping, right? But it's not, actually. It's, um, it's Katniss in her little tiny home and with her sister who's asleep, and she's thinking about, you know, how she's going to, like, feed her sister, and she's, you know, looking at her sleeping form and realizing, you know, you're kind of taking in their house and how poor they are and what the situation is. Um, and it does a lot of things, right? It establishes her love for her sister. It establishes the family's poverty. Um, and then the next scene is the reaping. And that's where her sister gets called up to stage and she says, no, no, I volunteer as tribute. So when that happens, we already know, we already see how much she loves her sister. So there's so much more impact. Um, and it also has great voice. So like that first chapter does a really great job of setting up you know, kind of the stakes and and the, and the voice is really great. It's a great example. It occurred to me, you're right, it's definitely open with that, uh, with the passionate moments. Huh. Uh, well, I'm, I'm watching our, our clock and I always fly by. Where, where's our time go, Wally? I, I, I have don't so many questions for you <laughs> and we're, we're nearly done. But why don't, why don't we uh, do two more? Sure. Um, and then we'll call it a, we'll call it a podcast. Uh, one I'm, I'm I'm obsessed with is how what's a good way for a writer to effectively tease out their novel scene so that the reader you know finishes the book and they're like that was a good story about a girl and her serial killer hang on that was about capitalism I understand what the author was trying to say from a large sense uh, so what's a good way for an author to tease out those scenes without becoming too preachy? Hmm. I mean I think so much of that is instinct, um, but I do think if you you know, if you're setting out to tell a story um, to convey a certain theme or a certain message, you're probably approaching it from the wrong place. Um, you know, the reader really has to be invested in the story and the character. And as much as I'd love, you know, to read a book that makes me hate the current administration, <laughs> um, I think if, you know, if you're writing a book for that purpose, it's going to feel didactic. Um, it has to be something that comes up a lot more naturally. It needs to be a lot more subtle. Um, I do think Harry Potter is a pretty good example of, um, you know, themes that just sort of happen to be there below the surface, but the story isn't really about that. Um, so I think reading, reading widely, you know, and thinking about your favorite books and saying, um, oh, well, what was the theme behind that? Um, and seeing how obvious or, or not obvious you think it is. Um, and even how that's progressed over time, like obviously C.S. Lewis really hit people over the head with some of his themes. Um, and I think when you look back on those books now, you really see that and you see that there are possibly better ways to do that than contemporary fiction. Yeah, but his readers were in danger of hellfire. I, mean. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I guess he just had to. 
<laughs> uh, well, there's, there's so many more questions about editing. I, I wish I had time to ask you because I know I could I, I could talk your head off all day, but I won't. I want to be respectful of your time, so I'll wrap it all up with this one question. Uh, if there was one piece of advice you wish that every uh, author and publishing professional listening or watching would take to heart that you think would, would make better their career and make better their writing, what advice would you impart to them? Either do your research or know your market, which is sort of the same thing. Um, but I think it's it's really important to know you know, as a writer, we focus so much on, on craft and on telling the best story we can. Um, but it's really important to know what the market is that you're writing into. It's important to know what's selling. Um, you know, it's important to know how to query an agent, who the good agents are. It's important to know what your contract says down the line, um, to be really literate when it comes to, you know, your rights um, and your income and to really just treat it like a business. Um, so I think it's a better way of saying it. Treat it like a business. Um, you know, your writing career is your business. Um, it's not just a passion or a hobby. Like if this is what you want to do, then you're in business for yourself. Um, and you should kind of treat yourself accordingly. Excellent advice. Um, I hope everybody listening uh, immediately puts it to effect and they'll be in good shape. Where, uh, where can a steam reader find out more about you? Where can they reach out to you for that conversation about how to become a better agent in New York that they're going to have with you? Sure. Um, if you're a person of color who wants to get into publishing, you can find me at Molly underscore Cusick on Twitter. Um, you can you know, DM me um, and we'll go from there. And as always, uh, I'm at middlegradeninja.com. Head there, check out uh, who's coming up at the show, what's going on. Uh, make sure you find your way back here next week, esteemed audience, for authors Kate Hannigan and Alan Woodrow. You know those are going to be fabulous shows. Uh, Molly, thank you again so much for making the time to do this. This was an absolute blast and a, a pleasure. Um, I have been asking our guests to sign us off, and our sign-off phrase is hi-ya and what have you. Will you sign us off? Hi-ya and what have you.